0: Hello, welcome to That Stack of Books. I'm Steve Scher. While Nancy Pearl is off and we are not meeting at the Bryant Corner Cafe, here's an interview with an author. If you were living in the Pacific Northwest and aware of what was going on, you probably remember what you were doing. May 18th, 1980. That's when Mount St. Helens erupted. Steve Olson, the author of Mapping Human History, a National Book Award finalist, has written an account of this most famous volcano. It's a natural and social history of the Pacific Northwest, Eruption, the Untold Story of Mount St. Helens. Steve Olson and I spoke at Town Hall. I remember taking the train down to Portland soon afterwards because the uh, highway was still closed, but they'd open the train. You know, that mountain of ash is still there. It's now covered with grass and Whatever else they planted, but you could still see that by the Toodle River. Yeah. And the train was kicking up ash down there. And by the time we got to Portland, I went to my friend's house. He said, look at my car. it's All pitted. Wrecked, probably. Wrecked, yeah. <laughs> and that was in Portland. You, uh, you write something here, though. Another reason I wanted to write this book is because 1980 was such a pivotal year in American history. What was the pivot?
1: Well, it was, wasn't it? I mean, there were amazing things going on in that year. Not just me getting married, but um, remember, uh, Jimmy Carter was being uh, voted out of office uh, and Ronald Reagan was replacing him. Uh, there were in- interesting political things happening here in Washington City. And there were a variety of other <coughs> sort of indicators of societal change that in the year 1980 uh, was, was an inflection point for a lot of things. Much of that was associated with... Uh, with a transfer from Democratic to Republican dominion. But uh, other issues were also coming to the fore right then. Uh, It was the first time that people started paying attention to global change and uh, the fact that greenhouse gases were eventually going to raise temperatures in the atmosphere.
0: Also that the small towns in the areas around Mount St. Helens Mount Rainier were starting to feel the the end of timber. Mm -hmm. And there were many angry people blaming all sorts of forces on that. Yes, it were. Um, was that part, of the, that part of what drove some people to not want to pay attention to what the uh, volcanologists and the other authorities were telling them?
2: Hmm, Interesting
0: question. There, were,
1: there was a lot of tension down there at the time. You might remember that period. That was the period when interest rates were at 18%. The housing... Yeah, nine, yeah. 9% for the nine yeah, for 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 but yeah, 20% that for a house. Yeah, exactly. 20% for a house, so you would still go in the hole. So uh, there was a lot of tension in logging communities. What was happening to loggers in Washington State at that time was that the old growth was really running out. And uh, the privately owned old growth was running out. There was still old growth left in some of the national forests, but the environmental movement was starting to say, you know, we we just can't let the National Forest Service uh, cut down all of these trees and really treat the national forests as uh, tree plantations. so, so there was a change then, and there was a transition in, in how we use our forests here in Washington State.
0: So what was the the uh, attitude of the Weyerhaeuser company in terms of those forces at that time in that area?
1: Yeah, it was sort of, you know, what was happening with Weyerhaeuser was happening with a lot of other smaller companies at the same time. Weyerhaeuser was <coughs> running through the last of its old-growth trees, and... At that point, their intention was simply to cut down those trees and close the mills that were capable of cutting those logs and become a tree farming operation. Uh, the the, the warehouser uh, uh, logo was uh, trees are a crop, right, that they would regrow trees. But that meant <laughs> quite a large transition in the way that the lumber, uh, the lumber business operated in Washington State. It meant fewer people were needed out in the woods to cut those trees. And uh, as a consequence... Uh, uh, some of those communities in southwest Washington were really feeling the uh, a heat that really didn't let up for decades. You know, we, we look back at that period and, and sort of say, well, there were environmental forces like uh, owls and other things that kept people from, from chopping down trees. And in the 1980s, the timber harvest in Washington State fell precipitously. But a lot of that was underway before the environmental forces occurred. It was really the fact that the, the old growth was, was finally running out, as, as it happened all the way across the United States uh, previously. It's why Weyerhaeuser came here in the first place.
0: I'm going to come back to history, but just one last okay. thing about the red and the blue zone there and that line. Um, they were running crews during the week, cutting trees as, as fast as they could. Were they doing that because they had pressure? from the, the scientists who were saying you've got to get out of there, or were they doing that because they could use that urgency to kick up their production?
1: What I think was happening is that Weyerhaeuser was interested in getting that old growth forest out and shutting down those mills and transitioning into this new era that they had been preparing for for a long time. And uh, So when the volcano started acting up, because the geologists couldn't tell them exactly what was going to happen, they just continued doing business as usual. They, they didn't ma- really make big, plan- big changes in their plans at that time. They did move <coughs> some of their loggers up off of the valley floors where they were worried about floods occurring up onto the ridgelines and, and gave, gave some of the crews walkie-talkies so that they could issue warnings for this.
0: That's interesting. So they were, they did feel that there was some... They did feel correct. that there was some risk, absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt about that.
1: And you know there was—I um, talk in the book about the fact that there was a proposal uh, to extend the blue zone uh, way out to the west and the north that was sitting on Dixie Lee Ray's desk uh, on the weekend that the that the volcano erupted. Um, Dixie Lee Ray was gone on Saturday and was not able to sign that blue zone. But if it had gone into effect, most of the people that were in that area. Where the, where the fatalities occurred would have been there illegally, and therefore law enforcement could have enforced that blue zone to, to move them out of those areas.
0: So what kind of guy was George Weyerhaeuser? What kind of guy is George Weyerhaeuser?
1: George Weyerhaeuser, who ran the company at that time, um, was sort of the, 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 the model of an old-school CEO. I don't know if they exist anymore. He's a... Um, he had a very unusual life. He was groomed his whole life to lead that company. He was the fourth uh, generation of Warehousers to lead that company. He let it though in a different way than the others had. The warehouseer company was always built on a philosophy of, of consensus. And when George Warehouser took over the company about 10 or 15 years before the eruption of Mount St. Helens, he brought a new style to that company. Um, he would consult with people and get information, but uh, when he made a decision, he made it and he stuck to it. And uh, that was another factor in the time of, of Mount St. Helens, is that uh, uh, there, was, yeah, there would not have been any reason for him to have changed the way he did things. That's, that's the kind of guy he was. Two-fisted it's, guy. Yeah, yeah.
0: Why was he a two-fisted guy, by the way? What's his history? Um,
1: just, I think, the, you know, when you're the fourth-generation lumberman, that's how, you're, that's how you're taught to approach the world. You know, it's a funny thing. He was the last Warehouser to lead that company. His son... Uh, who I knew um, never achieved um, the head of the company. And now there's not a warehouser that's even on the board, I don't believe. And uh, I write in the book that Warehouser will probably never be led by a Warehouser again. It's a big change in corporate culture <coughs> in uh, the 1980s. Um, away from families that could control and own businesses toward uh, the demands of Wall Street, which... Re- require greater returns, and the Warehousers really didn't run that company that way. They ran it like an old family company. Uh, George is still alive. His son died in a, uh, of a heart attack on Commencement Bay a couple
0: of years ago. George Warehouser was kidnapped. He was kidnapped, yeah. That's, I didn't know that about him. Right soon after Lindbergh's baby was mm-hmm, kidnapped, mm-hmm. somebody went for George as a
1: As a nine-year-old.
0: Yeah. How did he survive that?
1: uh he was a resor- He was resourceful even as a nine year old he uh, he kept his wits about him the entire time uh, the, the story of how he was kidnapped and what happened to him in the eight days before he was released is really an incredible story, which I tell in this book um, it's psychological speculation as to how much that experience would have affected George warehouseer and the way he conducted himself in later years uh, but in any event that seems to me in childhood of that tr- uh, that kind of traumatic event must have an influence on the way people approach their lives. He was uh, kept in a, in a pit in the forest for a while. He was dro- driven to Spokane and uh, smuggled into a house in a cracker box and, uh, and kept there. His, uh, his uh, a, a ransom demand was made for his family of, I believe, $200,000, which is well in excess of a million or two dollars today, uh, accounting for inflation. His family did pay the ransom. And George Weyerhaeuser was released, unlike the Lindbergh baby, which had happened just shortly before that. A farmer found him walking down the road and and brought him back to his family. Is that what happened?
0: Did you get to talk to him for this book?
1: I did not. No, the Weyerhaeuser, I approached the Weyerhaeuser company and the Weyerhaeuser family, and they declined to cooperate with me on this book. Did they tell you why? Uh, They did not. Uh, there was a lawsuit uh, filed after, this, uh, after the eruption by uh, the, the families of several of the victims around uh, the volcano. That lawsuit went to trial here in King County, ended in a hung jury. If I had to guess, uh, I would say that the Weyerhaeuser family and company is still leery of talking with uh, uh, the press or members of the public because of the, the after effects of that lawsuit. Which
0: were, or which are?
1: Um, because it ended in a hung jury, there was no decisive conclusion about who might have been at fault, and um, the lawyer for the plaintiffs decided, convinced the family that it was not a wise idea to uh, ask for another trial. Uh, my guess is that the company would just rather leave that box unopened. What do you mean, at fault? What was the fault? The claim made by the families is that the warehouser company did not adequately alert its employees to the fact that working by the volcano was dangerous. And that's why, and the only people who were parties to the lawsuit were warehouser employees, the Killians, for instance, who were up camping. But because they worked for warehouser, the case could be made that, that the company should have told the family more about the dangers in being so close to the volcano. What do you think? You looked, at the tra- you looked at the transcripts? You looked at the records? I did look at the transcripts. Is there fault to be had? We haven't talked much about Dixie Lee Ray, but Dixie Lee Ray plays into the story in quite an interesting way as well.
0: That is where I am going.
1: Oh, really? To Dixie Lee Ray? <laughs> you have taken me there. You remember in Driver's Ed, you saw that movie which was called uh, the Tragedy of Metal or Final Factor or something like that. And remember, it's about... Um, These five things have to happen for this tragedy to occur. And then there's this one last thing that happens that makes the tragedy occur. And this story is a little bit like that. I mean, everybody did something just a little bit wrong. And when you add up all those wrong things together, it turned out to be a tragedy. That's that's my interpretation of this. I, I have a hard time saying that any one individual was at blame. And part of what this book is about is trying to explain the complexities of the situation that led to this tragedy so you can understand why people did what they did all along the way. You know, so here in Washington State, we still have a tendency to blame these people who were killed in the eruption. We, we, we say a lot of people think that they were in these areas illegally or that uh, they were just taking risks, that they should have known better. Uh, that's a, a very strong conclusion of my book is that that was not the case uh, because I would have done the same thing. If I'd gone down there that weekend, I would have been exactly where they were. And I would not have been breaking the law, and uh, I w- and I would have paid for that decision with my life if I'd been there.
0: And Dixie Lee, what was her what was her? Mistake? Dixie Lee Ray. You, some people here remember
1: Dixie Lee Ray. Oh
0: yeah.
1: There's a character in national politics today that's a little bit like Dixie Lee Ray. <laughs> Dixie Lee Ray. I mean, there are many admirable things about Dixie Lee Ray. She was a wild uh, character. Uh, she saved the Pacific Science Center. You know, I personally believe that one of the reasons Seattle is a huge tech and science center is because of the science center. After the World's Fair, it was really Dixie Lee Ray who stepped in and kept that, uh, kept that operation going. Um, she was a very strongly opinionated woman. I'm sure great fun to be around. Uh, going out for a drink with Dixie Lee Ray would have been, would have been great. Was she a good governor? I think the, you know, she only lasted for, for four years, and... Um, was replaced by the last Republican governor in Washington state history. I think there's probably a reason for it. I mean, if, if fault can be laid, it is the responsibility of the state to keep its citizens safe. Uh, the, Dixie Lee Ray and her aides were aware of the fact that the danger zones were not large enough. And they took steps to expand the danger zones, but they did not know so quickly enough or forcefully enough. And um, if, the, if blame can be laid at anyone's feet for what happened in Mount St. Helens, I think the state has to take a large responsibility of that blame. That's their job. Even though they would have gotten um, no end of grief. Oh, absolutely. But it's like preparations for earthquakes and, and volcanic eruptions here. Uh, we will face these circumstances where it is difficult to engage in preparations for hazards that exist. But... The state exists to do everything it can to try to save us from ourselves.
0: Real quick, let's talk about what's what's up there now and and how that area is being preserved or not being preserved. Mm -hmm. So how, how much of that area has been set aside to just naturally return to whatever, well, to naturally move forward?
1: Another interesting aspect of this book, which I didn't mention in my book talk at all,
0: there was a group uh,
1: working to preserve the area around Mount St. Helens before the eruption. Uh, All of the area that they wanted to preserve was, of course, destroyed by the eruption. They had a big choice to face after the eruption about what to do. They decided that they would continue their efforts to save the area around the eruption, not as a beautiful playground, Uh, where people could go and camp and hike, but as a place where scientific research could be conducted on the way that land comes back after it's devastated by a volcanic eruption. Uh, That campaign led directly to the establishment of the Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument, which exists today. It's not as large as the group wanted, but it's better than nothing. And there's been some just incredible research conducted down there on the way that life comes back into a devastated area that has really transformed how ecologists think about that process in what way what what was the transformation they used to think that it was a much more deterministic process that uh that you could you would see a succession of things happening after an area was devastated and life came back in what they discovered in studying mount st helms is that it's much more random than you might have guessed it really depends on uh, the, the first few animals and plants that come back into an area, the time of year when an eruption happens, different things happen in different places. So it's not at all the same process that occurs in the various places that they've looked. Uh, they've they've discovered sort of the uh, the resiliency of randomness as opposed to the. The, the the monocultures that surround it, the the planted forests that exist. It's really a fascinating con- uh, contrast. If you ever go down there and you're driving to the monument, you'll see warehouse property that has been replanted on one side, and you'll see the monument on the other side of the road of Spirit Lake Highway as you're going up there. Radically different different ecosystems on either side of the road, uh, and. One thing about Mount St. Helens is it's the most biodiverse place in Washington State. Uh, as as plants and animals have come back there, there's just been this wild profusion of life that has come back, and much much more biodiverse than other than other areas in Washington State. That was something else they didn't expect.
0: Uh, Warehouse, didn't they go in pretty quickly to take the timber out, to, to harvest the They blown? did, yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, there, this huge amount of timber had been blown down, and uh, certainly they were very interested in getting the timber off of their land. They cooperated with the state in sort of doing trades, and uh, some salvageable timber was left in the National Monument so that scientists could watch how, uh, what happened with that timber. And it has been a very interesting scientific experiment to see the ways in which downed trees can act as fertilizer for the, the colonization of these devastated areas by other plants and animals.
0: The earth heals itself a lot quicker than anything we can yeah. do by messing around.
1: But by the same token, when you go down there, it remains this incredible devastation. It's, 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 it, it has this uh, dual appearance of, yes, life is coming back very quickly, but here we are 36 years after the eruption, and it is still uh, a blasted and devastated landscape in certain respects.
0: I am curious, did anybody go down? Was anybody in the uh, group going down before the volcano blue, breaking the laws, sneaking into the red zones or blue zones? out. Nope, nobody here. I think it's Statue That's... of Limitations is <laughs> Just check. Steve was telling me he has good friends who did. Yeah, I had some friends, thought they were scientists, they thought it'd be cool. If they had stayed another day, they would have mm-hmm. been dead.
1: And when you go to southwestern Washington, almost everyone will tell you, you know, if that volcano had gone the week before, I wouldn't be here today. They were, they were all up there at one time or another, either working or camping or fishing or doing something up there.
0: I also had friends who had uh, one of those cabins. Oh, really? I don't know what if they ever got any money for it or not. I don't know what happened, but yeah, they had one of those cabins that were now are still gone. I don't know the answer. Did they get the land above it, even though it's 200 <laughs> feet further up?
1: It's all land? it's all in the monument now. Yeah, so uh, then, then maybe it's eminent domain that took the land away from them. But I, I don't know the answer to that question.
0: Uh, questions from you guys there and there, please go. George H. W. Bush science advisor, how'd they feel about science in the White House there?
1: Wow, that's, uh, I'll have to dredge my memory banks to think about that. That was the first George Bush, so that was a long time ago. It was a different time in America, let me tell you that.
0: <laughs> a different Republican Party. But, yes, it
1: was. Yeah,
2: I agree. Well, This is fascinating. Thank you for coming and doing this. Oh, sure. But you mentioned something early on that now, I, this is such a naive question. You said people around there didn't hear anything. I was on the back end of a sailboat in Snug Harbor, cooking breakfast. And we heard this mm-hmm. loud bang, and all the other boats around, we thought, well, it's the Navy breaking the sound there.
1: So I'll tell you my story, and then Steve so can tell you there his. So was no
2: sound down there, but there why was, did we hear it?
1: It, was, it? What happened is the sound went up. It went up into the atmosphere, and the blast cloud muffled the sound as it was coming out sideways. And so the sound went up and bounced off inversion layers in the atmosphere and reflected back to Earth. So some places would hear it and some places didn't. And Steve and I were talking about this
0: before the show where he had friends who heard it and and recorded
1: it. And I've never heard this
0: recording, but I really want to. Yeah, we have to find it. Yeah, I had a friend who was producing a radio show for KRAB, Crab Radio, back in 1980. And she was in the Skagit Valley, up high in the Skagit, recording bird songs because we were doing a, a feature about the land and land development. And so she was trying to get bird songs and she was recording, and I've heard the tape because we incorporated it into our documentary. Right, um, birds are chirping, birds are chirping, 30, 40. minute. Birds are fine, and then dead silence. I don't know for how long, maybe ten seconds, maybe thirty seconds. I don't know, but dead silence, and then a crack like a shotgun had gone off right next to the microphone, just a just a loud crack, and that was that, yeah, was, yeah, the that was the reflected sound, sound of St. Helens. Yeah
1: yeah no, or they felt it right, felt it, yeah, felt the pressure somehow, I mean, the pressure wave would have come out, moved at more or less the speed of sound, but the sound waves had to go up and bounce off the atmosphere and come down, so my guess is that that's why the sound was later than the pressure wave.
2: I have a question, but I just want to say to that my parents were in Mount Vernon, and they heard three loud booms at eight thirty that morning. Mm-hmm. But in Tacoma we didn't hear anything. Yeah,
0: interesting. Yeah. I don't yeah. think we even knew it in Seattle. We didn't know. Yeah. We didn't hear it. We didn't get very much ash. If we got any ash, it was much later.
2: Yeah. The question is, uh, could you speak about the family of the dad and two two sons? One was in the back of the pickup truck. Yeah, they the were trying the cares, to right.
1: Yeah. They they were close to the volcano. Um, and um, the family was all killed there was a son in the back of the pickup it caused a great controversy at the time because a photograph was taken of this young boy 10 years old uh, in in the back of the pickup and uh, by an associated press photographer who was flying overhead and they recognized that it was it's a story often told in journalism circles because they recognized at the time that this was a young boy and uh, they did not know whether sending out an, a, a photograph like that over the wires was appropriate they decided to do so and received both criticism and praise for doing so. It, it sort of marks a, a dividing line in in the journalistic ethics of that kind of of re- using that kind of photograph.
0: You uh, and more questions, please. You have uh, a page here: people killed by the eruption of Mount St. Helens. All fifty-seven of them. Have how much? How many people's? How many stories of their? How do I say this? How much do we know about these people? Uh, 57 people, have we heard very much about all 57? No. We hear about Harry Truman. Yep. We hear about the uh, the photographer. But that's a lot of people.
1: Quite a bit is known about some, much less about others. Uh, it really depended on the families, right? Because after the victims were killed, journalists would reach out to the families and say, can you tell us about this person? Some families cooperated, and some families did not. Uh uh, I, know, I know quite a bit about uh, a lot of those 57 people, but in other cases, I don't. And uh, the, the privacy of the family is such that it's, I, I wouldn't think it appropriate to try to pursue uh, after the, all this time. Now, again, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because um, this generation of people who were involved in this 36 years ago is starting to die off. And I figured you know, this was going to be my one opportunity to go out and talk with a lot of people who I might not be able to talk with 10 years from now.
0: Anything in particular that you learned that was surprising or perhaps uh, emotionally uplifting? Hmm,
1: emotionally uplifting, yeah. People are still traumatized by this down there. And, uh, no, I think there's, there's still a lot of pain in these communities associated with this event. Uh, families who lost family members. And these are, these are extended clans of logging families that have been down in that area for generations. Everybody was touched by somebody down there who was in that
0: volcano. Who was the furthest away?
1: There were, yeah, the, the furthest away was a guy about whom very little is known, uh, a man named Moore, who was out fishing on the Green River 17 miles away from the volcano. He was at the very edge of the blast zone, fishing with two friends. And uh, the blast zone came down and knocked down trees probably 200 yards further, they would have been fine. His, um, he, was, he was buried in the trees, and they never found him. Uh, His friends went back and searched that area where they had been fishing for years after that, but his body was never found. Uh, He's down there somewhere. Um, But that was the, the force of this volcanic eruption, 17 miles away from the volcano.
0: Several additional people may have died in the eruption, but their names did not appear on the final official list of the dead. So there's more unknown.
1: Well, I talk about 57 people quite a bit, right? So six of the, those 57, um, I use 57 as a, as a number of convenience, six of those 57 may not have existed. We weren't, people were not very good at that point at coming up with official lists of the dead. So 51 people definitely did exist, but there are six people with names that are, that are really not all that well-known. But there are another six people who were vacationing around Mount St. Helens at the time of the eruption and who were never heard from again. Their names did not make it onto the the list of the official dead, and I don't think it's much more than six, but nevertheless, that that number of 57 has to be taken with uh, some qualifications.
0: You ended by saying, in retrospect, the story seems preordained as if the people around the mountain on May 18th were playing out designated roles, but that's a misconception product of retrospective fatalism. What do you mean?
1: Well, that's kind of what this book is about, is all these things had to happen along the way for this person to be in that particular spot. And the way that luck plays into what happened to the people that day. You come to a junction in the road, do you turn right or do you turn left? And if you turn left, you're going to survive, and if you turn right, you're not. And, and, um, and, and so there are both immediate decisions and more distant decisions that go into what happened to those people that day. And that's, those are the things I wanted to explore with this book. I mean, everyone's curious about that, I think.
2: Yes, uh, I I think the fact that you have uh, focused on the people who lost their lives in this was commendable, but in a lot of situations like this, uh, for example, in uh, uh, wartime, uh, usually the number of casualties for the people who uh, had close calls are far greater than the number of fatalities. Did you make an attempt to to locate and speak to the people who... uh, survived this event and uh, they could have easily lost their lives. Uh,
1: I, I did. The Moors are an example of that, right? Because they were in this area where they, where they were near, uh, where they could have been. The, 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 al- the alternate question to who was the person who was farthest away who was killed is who was the person who was nearest who survived? And there were several groups that were not far from Fawn Lake who did manage to survive. And again, it was more a matter of luck. Where does your pickup happen to be parked? In relationship to this particular hill, which shapes the blast cloud as it comes around, so that it doesn't it doesn't cause these trees to fall on your pickup. Uh, I did talk to them. Um, you know, this event is as is is hard for them as well. I think I, I don't talk about survivor syndrome in this book, but it's hard for survivors. I think to to talk about this event where somebody else died, but they didn't, and they realize how how much role luck played in that and what happened to them that day.
0: Uh, hello. I had a quick question about um, the flows that came
2: down the mountain.
0: Uh, I was in Portland at the time, so I remember the explosion and the ash coming down and whatnot. But it was only a couple, maybe a year or so ago, that I heard of some, something mentioned in passing on newscasts about, I guess, the Army Corps of Engineers was it was panicking that the... Flow, like the volume of flow coming off the mountain was going to overwhelm the river. And I remember the Tuttle River causing problems, but I wasn't sure how bad they thought it might get. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on... Oh, yeah, a huge, yeah, yeah a, a huge,
1: a huge amount of ash and debris came flowing down the Tuttle, into the Cowlitz, into the Columbia River, so that you had tankers that were stuck in Portland for weeks and months because the Columbia River filled up with ash so much that they couldn't get out. They had to dredge all of those channels before a lot of those... Uh, And, you know, they still have troubles with that today. There's still a lot of sediment that's being washed down from the volcanoes. A gigantic dam was built across the Tuttle to hold that sediment. That dam is almost full now, and more and more sediment comes down all the time. So it's not like this problem has gone away. They're still struggling with those those kinds of issues down there.
0: And that knowledge taught people about what to think about if uh, Mount Rainier ever blows. Because the lahars that would come down would Mm -hmm. devastate Puget Sound area.
1: Good. I mean, this. yeah, this was in the 1980s after Mount St. Helens. One, one really interesting thing about Mount St. Helens is they looked at the landscape around Mount St. Helens, and they said, wow, I've seen those hills before. You know the hummocks that are down around Mount St. Helens, if you ever hiked around there? They said, I know those hills. And you look at a place like Mount Shasta, and you see those same hills 30 miles away from the mountain, or 20 miles away from the mountain. And they, say, oh, and, and they never understood where those hills came from. Oh, yeah, they say to themselves, Mount Shasta has collapsed and blown out sideways in this same way it's done so repeatedly and now they understand uh, where those where those hills came from so Mount St Helens really was a very instructive painfully instructive episode for volcanologists they 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 have since recognized that volcanoes regularly collapse they build them they build up their cones like that collapse and then blast out to the side that's it's not an unusual occurrence and they knew it they knew the volcanoes be- could behave that way before 1980 they just kind of didn't take that into account in, in looking at Mount St. Helens and thinking maybe this volcano will do that same thing. And they certainly didn't anticipate the size of the blast zone.
2: Well, uh, again, could you elaborate a little bit? Maybe you didn't explore this at all, but the whole psychological impact. I mean, I was at Snug Harbor, which is like west of Friday Harbor. So that's pretty far up. And then we had to bring the, the uh, ferry back lines and lines to get on the ferry but I spent a whole year until that next eruption waiting for the other shoe to drop so could you talk about whether or not you explored that whole dimension
1: it was a very uncertain time in Washington State I remember those early 1980s I mean I I talked with people who said I'm not gonna move to Washington State where there's um, these volcanoes that are erupting all the time People seem to have gotten over that since they're moving here in in droves now. So, um, But but yeah, I think initially after, I mean remember Mount St. Helens continued to erupt uh, over the course of that summer and then into the fall and so people were uncertain about it. Uh, It'll erupt again. It's only a matter of time until it does. It's erupted continually for the past, for thousands of years. Uh, It may be in a quiet phase now but it'll come back to life sometime.
0: So just that last, following up on that last question. Do you think it made us smarter, more pre- ready to be prepared? Oh, I think no. Yeah. Or frightened us? Or, or what? it's frightened
1: frighten us. us? No, no, I think it's definitely an opportunity to become more prepared, and I think we are more prepared. We learn so much from it. Uh, for instance, in the 1980s, I got a little distracted from Mount Rainier, but people started to recognize, wow, that these towns of Orting and, and, and Sumner are built on tops of old bud flows from Mount Rainier. That's why these areas are so flat here. And they they and then they started looking at Mount Rainier and they said and you know these mud flows can occur when there's no real signs of eruptions the gases coming up from Mount Rainier just can make that rock into this porous weak rock and whole portions of the mountain can slough off and and come and come rushing down those those river valleys uh, if you if you ever go down to those areas now you will see uh, warning signs and I mean just like tsunami signs on the coast they say this is the you get away from, get off planes. But people have to move fast. It, it is also like a tsunami on the coast. Once something comes off the side of Mount Rainier, you might have 10 or 15 minutes, and it might be in the middle of the night, and it might be raining, and you've got to get to high ground because your house is going to get covered. So are, are people prepared to do that? In some ways they are, but we have a lot long ways to go. You know, these volcanic eruptions are these low-probability, high-consequence events, and that's, that's what we live in in this world, and, and we, we really don't know how to deal with those very well. Scientists don't know how to deal with them, and we don't know, as citizens, a good way of dealing with them either.
0: No, nor as citizens in a political year. Yeah. I snuck that in. <laughs> uh, eruption, the untold story of Mount St. Helens. Steve Olson, thank you. Thank you. You. you can find out more about steve olson and his work at steveolson.com o l s o n Olson.com. you should follow us on twitter at that stack on facebook that stack of books with nancy pearl and steve share at our homepage that stack of books.com we will be back at the brian corner cafe if you're on our mailing list we'll let you know when that will be otherwise just keep checking the facebook page and the twitter feed And thanks for listening. Happy reading.